Welcome to Heart Matters, a show about all aspects of heart health, brought to you in partnership with the Providence Heart Institute and Boston Scientific. The Providence Heart Institute is a leading integrated network of cardiovascular care with a focus on putting our patients at the heart of everything we do. And we are committed to making a positive difference in every life we touch. As part of that commitment, we are bringing the doctors to you. Hi, folks. I'm your host, Matt Dusick, and I'm really excited about today's episode of Heart Matters because it touches upon a subject that I'm really proud of what we do and who we are at Providence. And that's our ability to really deliver whole person care to people, and especially those people who are poor and vulnerable. So in this case, we're going to be talking about a heart problem called infective endocarditis. And I'm going to get that wrong probably four or five times over the course of this episode. Uh, but it's a condition that disproportionately affects patients with substance abuse disorder. And a lot of those patients are patients who are without stable housing. They might have uh, behavioral health issues. They may lack access to other basic health services. So it presents a, a lot of problems and challenges to treat both from a clinical perspective, but also from a more holistic perspective about, about that idea of whole person care. So today we have a, a couple great experts that will be joining us. One is an addiction specialist, the other is a cardiac surgeon, and we'll jump into this topic and I think have a really great conversation. So without further ado, we're very pleased to welcome Dr. James Brevik and Dr. Jim Walsh to today's episode. Folks, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start off today by telling the listeners a little bit about yourselves and the work that you do for Providence. So Dr. Brevik, why don't we start with you? Uh, I'm a cardiac surgeon in uh, Providence, um, Everett. Uh, I've been here since uh, 1993. So I've been here for 30 years in practice. Um, I have a number of professional interests in blood management, in quality improvement, in process improvement, um, and have uh, done a number of projects uh, with uh, Matt and others over the years. Um, and um, I'm looking forward to this conversation about uh, infective endocarditis. Thanks, Dr. Brevik. Uh, Dr. Wall. Yeah, uh, I was trained as a family medicine doctor, and I worked in community health center for about seven years. I came to Swedish, uh, now part of Swedish Providence, as an addiction medicine fellow in 2002. And I've stayed working with the Addiction Recovery Service since that time. We have uh, a, a lot of services for pregnant people with substance use disorders, but also a hospital consult service. So we get to see people with chronic infections related to their substance use as well. In addition to the, the team that we have, we have an addiction medicine fellowship program, training physicians to be addiction medicine specialists. Got it. And just knowing both of you, what really stands out is, is how important it is for you both to listen to your patients and really have that connection. So you're, you're, you're partners in decision-making in really figuring out the course of treatment. And I think that that's especially relevant to today's conversation. And so I think that there's space for that to really talk about your approach to decision-making, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, redo surgeries, uh, repeat treatments, so that, that really jumped out for both of you in terms of an important part of, of who you are as physicians. Dr. Brevik, let's, let's just begin with the basics of what infective endocarditis is for people who might not know. And I'm guessing there's a lot of people who, who may never have heard of it. Yes, so endocarditis is uh, an infection of a heart structure, typically a heart valve. 
um, and it arises uh, from a bloodstream infection uh, that then sort of seats itself uh, into um, typically an area of turbulent blood flow uh, and typically around the cardiac valves. Um, the infection then causes a couple of things. Uh, one is it causes damage to the valve, so it can actually destroy some of the valve tissue, which of course uh, impairs the function of the valve. And typically that causes leaking of the valve. Um, the, the most commonly involved valves are uh, the tricuspid valve on the right side of the heart, uh, and on the left side of the heart, the mitral valve and the aortic valve. And um, so the endocarditis can, um, can lodge in any of those valves and uh, destroy the valve tissue as the infection progresses. Um, the other uh, facet of this is that um, collections of infected material called vegetations build up on the valves. And these can become, from, from my perspective, quite large, meaning 10 to 20 millimeters, uh, so less than an inch or up to an inch for a really large one. Uh, and the, the problem with that is that the uh, infected material, the vegetation, can break loose and be flushed downstream. And so that can cause problems wherever the vegetation happens to lodge. That could be in the brain and cause a stroke. Uh, it could cause encephalitis, meaning an infection in the brain. It commonly uh, involves um, uh, inve infections in the spine, uh, in other bones, in spleen. So really any structure uh, that can, can have a vegetation washed downstream into it and then have these infections, it causes skin changes, small uh, petechiae on the skin, little red spots uh, of, of this infected material. So it's really it becomes a systemic disease. It's not really just a cardiac disease. It has manifestations, um, you know, across the entire body. So, but that's the concept. It's an infection that lodges in a in a cardiac or heart structure, typically a heart valve. And the problems with it are uh, malfunction of the valve and embolization, which is when the infected material uh, gets flushed downstream to another vital organ. Dr. Brevik, that's a that's a pretty vivid and I'd say disturbing mental picture of, of vegetation <laughs> on on your heart. Uh, how common is this? Unfortunately, more common than we would like. There are around thirty to thirty five thousand cases of infective endocarditis uh, annually in the United States, um, and about half of these are related to intravenous uh, drug use, um, and the other half are related to other infections, and those could be things like uh, uh, a urinary tract infection, uh, an infected, uh, really any, any other bodily bacterial infection or even fungal infection can cause uh, endocarditis. It's possible to get fungal endocarditis from the urinary tract, for instance. So about 30 to 35,000 uh, patients per year and that turns into about 15 cases per 100,000 people in the United States. And Got it. And, and so how is this generally treated? At what point would, if I had this infective endocarditis, at what point would I be coming to see you? What, what, would, what would bring me to be sitting in, in your office talking about heart surgery? So uh, hopefully never, but <laughs> uh, if you did, the people are quite sick with endocarditis and they have the typical 
symptoms associated with bacterial infections, meaning flu-like symptoms, severe fevers, chills. Uh, there are commonly lung manifestations. People get very short of breath. And so they typically uh, present to medical attention because of one of the uh, symptoms of endocarditis. Uh, it could be a symptom related to the heart valve, like a leaky heart valve causing shortness of breath, which is called congestive heart failure. Uh, it could be related to a vegetation uh, embolizing somewhere else, causing a stroke or some other symptom that's, you know, as we described a few minutes ago. Uh, but typically people come to medical attention because they're really sick and they can often be sick for, for, for weeks or, or even longer and they lose weight and they can't really figure out what the problem uh, is. They feel terrible. They're anemic. Um, so it really is a systemic uh, and, and very severe and can be a very severe illness. And, and is heart surgery the most common treatment? No, um, the, the most common treatment is antibiotics and, um, and most cases of endocarditis respond well to antibiotics. A lot of that has to do with how early the infection is identified and treated. And so um, if, uh, if someone is diagnosed with endocarditis early in the course, meaning after a few days or a week, then uh, usually that can be resolved with antibiotics. They will get blood cultures. The organism will be identified and treated with antibiotics specific to that organism. And so if that treatment is started before there is substantial damage to the heart valves, before there is a large vegetation, before there is embolization of debris to other vital organs, before there is respiratory failure related to infections in the lungs, then the infection can be successfully treated in most cases with uh, antibiotics. So I'm guessing with, with many things in life, timing is everything. And the maybe the, the, the time at which during the progression of this disease, we're able to identify it and intervene probably affects our long-term outlook. Absolutely. Yeah, they, the timing of the diagnosis is, is critical. And it can be a difficult diagnosis to make, actually, because lots of people have illnesses, flu-like symptoms, bacterial infections. Very few of them have endocarditis. Um, and so that's, that's one reason that the diagnosis often doesn't get made till later on. Uh, because it can be difficult to make the diagnosis. Really, the, the keystone diagnostic test uh, is an echocardiogram, which looks carefully at the heart valves. Got it. So we're, we're going to pivot to Dr. Walsh in a moment, but can you just maybe walk our listeners through the mechanics of how you would treat that through surgery? Typically, the surgery involves uh, removing the infected material, uh, usually removing the infected heart valve and replacing it with a prosthetic heart valve. Those can either be mechanical valves uh, made out of uh, pyrolytic carbon and titanium and, uh, and fabric, or they can be uh, tissue valves made out of uh, natural tissues, typically uh, cow or, uh, or pig uh, uh, valves or pericardium, which is the lining sac around the lung. So, uh, from my perspective, I don't see these patients until they're late in the course when they have substantial uh, damage to their heart valves and they've often had uh, embolization uh, of debris by the time I see them. Um, and so there are a couple of critical decision points there. One is what's the appropriate timing of the surgery because uh, the 
the ideal is to have the infection treated and resolved before they have surgery. The reason for that is twofold. One is if they are in the throes of a, an acute bacterial illness, that's a terrible time to have open heart surgery, just in terms of recovery. Uh, the other is that the valves that I put in can become infected uh, if there is active bacterial infection in the bloodstream and around the valve. So there's always a tricky decision point about when the patient should have surgery. Um, in general, the longer we can wait in terms of treating the bacterial infection, the better, but not all patients can tolerate that, and some of them just need surgery almost immediately. Um, so, so the surgery involves removing the infected material and, uh, and typically replacing the valves. Occasionally, if the uh, infection is caught uh, sort of midstream, uh, it can be controlled uh, and the bloodstream sterilized and the valve sterilized, then the valves can be repaired instead of replaced. Uh, but that requires typically a prolonged, meaning six-week course of intravenous antibiotics uh, to make sure that the infection is controlled before we uh, try to repair a valve. Got it. Well, thank you for that. So we're going to pivot to Dr. Walsh for a minute. And building on Dr. Brevig, your, your comments that in this population of, of infective endocarditis patients, about half of them are intravenous drug users, which is, again, a, a, a disproportionate part of this population that, that, that seems to have this, this disease. So Dr. Walsh, maybe talk a little bit about how substance abuse disorder does affect heart health in general, and then where you're seeing that correlation between substance abuse disorder and infective endocarditis. Well, th thank you. Thanks, Matt. There's a number of substances that specifically affect the heart, but there's going to be an irony to the situation that, that the, the drug we care about the most is perhaps the least toxic in a strange way. Obviously, alcohol effect can affect the heart. Alcohol can cause the dilated cardiomyopathy and the arrhythmias or regular heartbeats. Uh, cigarettes affect the heart profoundly and is probably the most damaging uh, or most commonly used damaging drug to the heart, causing atherosclerosis and heart attacks. Methamphetamine can sometimes cause a cardiomyopathy in its own way. Um, it's not a common thing, but it's something you've been starting to notice lately. But, but for infective endocarditis, opioids are really the, the drug that have been causing the attention. And opioids are not toxic to the heart. In fact, opioids have very little specific toxicity other than the risk of an overdose. If you take more than your body's used to, your breathing rate can slow down so much that you can die. So it's not a direct effect of the opioid itself on the heart. It's due to the injection practices. So, so people will inject opioids when they, when they sort of can't access enough to fit, meet their need. Um, injecting is sort of a stronger and more economical way, if I can use that word, of using opioids. So people at times will, will, will turn to injections. And injections can be done cleanly and safely, but are generally not done cleanly and safely. So bacteria, which is on the skin or other parts of the body, can be introduced into the bloodstream, causing the very infection Dr. Brevig talked about. And if it seeds into the heart valves, then uh, infective endocarditis can get rolling. So we're talking about heroin users who are injecting the drug? For the most part, there can be a variety of opioids which are injected, but traditionally heroin was the most common thing. There's been some interesting historical trends. You know, in the 90s, opioids were prescribed very aggressively, and a lot of people became opioid addicted or opioid dependent or developed an opioid use disorder due to oxycodone and others uh, prescribed opioid medications. There was, uh, when I first started my addiction training kind of in 2002, uh, an, ag uh, an aggressive illicit 
or purchase use of oxycodone was a common thing that was made. Um, when that was sort of became less available, most people in the substance use community shifted to heroin. And, and so a heroin injection became increasingly common. People would smoke it if they, uh, if they could get a substance strong enough or if their tolerance was relatively low. But as things escalated, they'd often turn to injecting it. Um, interestingly, there's been some changes lately. People move from heroin to fentanyl as fentanyl has kind of displaced heroin in the market. And, and, and at least for the last two or three years, we've actually seen a little bit less infective endocarditis because people have been smoking fentanyl because it's fairly powerful and there's been a little bit less injecting. So, so that's been a, a weirdly a positive trend from an infection perspective, but a, but a really disastrous thing from an overdose perspective. Fentanyl is so strong, a lot of people have accidentally overdosed. Yeah, as an addiction specialist and, and uh, I mean, both, both yourself and Dr. Brevik practice in the Pacific Northwest, you practice in uh, like a lot of our cities now where, where this, this uh, either has been a longstanding or sometimes a rising challenge. Is there, is there a basic profile to the patients that you see? I think we hear a lot about uh, drug addiction and especially uh, intravenous drug use in the homeless population. What does that look like from a patient characteristic perspective for you? There's a tendency to think of, of substance use disorders being something that affects a sort of a specific kind of person. But I, but I would say evidence suggests that's not true. The, the most profound predictor of substance disorder is a genetic tendency. It tends to run in families. And how people respond to opioids or alcohol or stimulants, there's, there's some genetic variation that probably affects people's likelihood of developing substance uses. So, so that's probably the number one thing. People who've got a significant history of trauma in their life, people who've had a difficult or, or early childhood experiences are definitely more prone to develop substance disorders. And a lot of the patients that we see in our uh, program have been uh, suffered really, really outrageous and, and dramatic and heartbreaking traumas in their early life and in their subsequent lives. Um, homeless substance disorder, homeless is not a cause of substance disorder. It can be a consequence of it. Um, but, but homelessness is, is what is visible. So there's lots of people using substances at home, um, but they're less visible. And obviously everything is harder for people who are homeless. Treating any uh, mental health condition or physical health condition, diabetes, hypertension, et cetera, is going to be just incredibly difficult for people who don't have a safe, stable place to live. There's definitely reports of people using substances to tolerate the challenges of homelessness. Typically, from my patients, I hear that in terms of alcohol and methamphetamine, um, and less around opioids specifically. Um, but the homeless uh, folks are using it's kind of more visible in the community. And it's also probably hard to do things safely and more hygienically. You think about it, it's not the opioid that causes the problem, it's the safety of the injection process. And if you're someone who doesn't have like a, a bathroom to wash or take a shower, it's probably much, much harder to do things in a safe way. Thank, thank you for that, Dr. Walsh. I think that's a, that's a really important point is that, is that, you know, we can look at, I think, substance abuse disorder. We can look at the lack of stable housing. We can look at things like behavioral health or mental illness, maybe as a bit of a Venn diagram, but it's, but, but I don't think it's, it's, it's predominantly one or the other. And the idea, as you said, that, that there are plenty of people with substance abuse disorder that are not homeless. And there are plenty of people with substance abuse disorder that are not, um, uh, challenged with it, with behavioral health or, or, or mental illness. And I think that's where it gets into the whole person care and that's where it gets complicated. So what do we mean by whole person care? Can you talk about that a little bit? We, when we think about not just the clinical piece, but, but what are, what's the, what's the, the general philosophical approach to whole person care that you take? To, to me, there's two perspectives of that. You know, one is 
trying to treat uh, a narrow lane of a medical health problem without understanding the context of the person's life and how it's going to fit into their life is just unrealistic. So whether someone has surgery or is going to spend weeks in the hospital, obviously that's going to have profound impacts on the other parts of the life. Maybe they have children to take care of. Maybe they have rent set to use. Maybe they got a pet they're worried about um, or their job. Or, or honestly, even if people are homeless, there are struggles and contexts that they feel responsible for out in the community that become really important to them. So try and understand that's really important. The other issue, though, I'd say is, is, is who's in charge. You know, sometimes it's really obvious to me what I think someone should do, and I would love them just to do what I tell them to do, but that's not how humans operate. Humans have their own opinions and want to be in charge of their own lives. So having autonomy and control is important and being able to make decisions. And honestly, most people, because they understand the whole context of their lives, will make better decisions for their life than I would make for them, honestly. But, but we can work together and co cooperate. In our team, we use motivational interviewing as a, as a principal clinical practice, a way of conversing with people that really respects their autonomy and their understanding of what they need in their life. Yeah, and, and I guess I should ask that, are, are you seeing an uptick in these cases, I mean, how have you have you seen the, the pendulum of of substance abuse disorder? Or maybe it's not a pendulum, but the trends over the last, let's just say, maybe three or five years. Well, substance use disorder, you know, exists really chronically through time and space and cultures, and typically affects about ten percent of human beings are people who've, who've dealt with a substance disorder. And if you think about people you know and people in your families, you'll see that this is not a rare a rare thing. Most of us have, have dealt with it one way or the other with people that we love or care about, if not ourselves. So there are common problems. The specific substances that are used tend to vary historically historically through time. So as everyone knows, in the 90s and 2000s, opioids really spiked in our country, possibly related to prescribing practices primarily. And, and opioids have become a, a really dominant aspect of substance disorders. Back in the day, it was about 0.5% of people dealt with an opioid disorder. And today, it might be as high as 1, in, one or 2% in some communities. Um, alcohol use disorder still kind of uh, moves along. Methamphetamine use has gone up quite a lot. And is at least in our community, displaced cocaine for the most part. But, but these are long-term problems. They're not terribly new. Homelessness, of course, has been a huge change, and really because of economic processes and the, you know, the, the cost of a place to live has, has been a huge change, at least in our community. Yeah, I think we're seeing, we're seeing that in almost all the communities that, that Providence serves, if not, I mean, certainly across the country. Uh, Dr. Brevik, one of the reasons that we're talking about this on today's show, I think goes back maybe four or five years where we had a group of cardiac surgeons that were together for, for a, a quality improvement meeting. And I remember one of them coming up to either you or another surgeon and, and saying, hey, what do you do when, we, when you treat a heroin addict for, for infective endocarditis and six months later, they're coming back to you again with the same problem? And so it, part of the issue, I think sometimes is the need for reoperation in patients that have this condition that have substance abuse disorder, we know that there's a high recidivism rate in, in opioid use. What's the likelihood that a heart patient that has this, this substance usage problem will have to come back for another procedure? And then, and then what's the increase in risk when that happens? Well, these are really tragic situations for uh, everyone involved, the patient and their family, um, uh, stepping back a moment to your con comment about the whole person care, when when we looked at this uh, in our in our system wide uh, cardiac surgery group, 
um, we came up with a set of guidelines for a multidisciplinary approach. And the reason is that if someone has endocarditis and they have their heart valve replaced, that, that doesn't cure their addiction. And it doesn't cure the underlying issues that they had that led to that addiction and to their current situation. Um, and so it's, it's critically important to uh, make sure that we treat the addiction and the underlying causes as well as the, uh, the, the last symptom of it, which is, uh, which is the cardiac or heart symptom. So um, not to be too dramatic about it, but the patients that I see that have endocarditis are essentially dying from endocarditis. Uh, but endocarditis is the symptom of their addiction for, for patients that are uh, their intravenous drug users. And so it doesn't make sense to treat only the symptom. We have to treat the underlying cause as well. The scenario you brought up about a patient that has a drug use disorder and uh, gets endocarditis and gets a heart valve replaced uh, and gets another heart valve or then gets their new heart valve infected is a very difficult scenario. And there's a spectrum of that uh, Unfortunately, I've seen <laughs> uh, every component I'm about to mention. One end of the spectrum is that the patients in the hospital uh, before surgery and their friends or family bring them in uh, illicit drugs and inject them actually in the hospital, or they use hospital uh, placed uh, intravenous access to, to inject um, drugs that, they, that their friends bring in. Um, the next, you know, the next step in that process is the same thing happens after surgery. Someone can have surgery and they, if they are homeless or have a disordered social situation, which is just as common, um, people in the throes of, of drug addiction often really cannot maintain relationships. They can't maintain their finances. They have trouble finding a place to live. And although they may not be technically homeless, they have a really disordered and difficult social situation. And so if we, if we replace their heart valve uh, and send them back into that disordered situation, that just does not go well for them in terms of the recovery from surgery. So many of these patients wind up staying in the hospital for six or more weeks afterwards getting intravenous antibiotics. So the, the, and those patients also can succumb to their addiction and, uh, and inject uh, illicit drugs after surgery. I've seen that happen, actually. Friends and family come in, and, uh, and I'm not trying to understand the motivation, but they provide drugs for the patients. Um, I've also seen the case where we've successfully operated on someone for endocarditis. They've been in the hospital for six weeks. They go home or leave the hospital, I should say. Uh, and uh, two weeks later, I get a call from an outlying hospital that they're in the emergency department uh, they have, um, and they have a bacterial infection and they have endocarditis in their new valve. So we cannot underestimate the, you know, the power of this addiction that has on people's decision-making ability. And I agree with Dr. Walsh. I would love it if, um, if patients just did what I told them to do, <laughs> but that often is not the case. Uh, and, and particularly in patients that have, um, a drug use disorder. And so, um, so it's critical to treat that as well. And in terms of your specific question, Matt, about reoperation, not many of the patients that get early endocarditis after a valve replacement 
called prosthetic valve enteritis, get another operation. Uh, and the reason is that uh, is twofold. One is that they're dying of their drug addiction. They're not actually dying of enteritis. Enteritis is a symptom, but they're dying of drug addiction. And few surgeons um, or many surgeons are reluctant to operate on patients that are really dying from another cause. The proximate cause is their valve problem, but really the underlying cause is, is different. Um, there certainly are circumstances where we would reoperate on someone, someone that uh, gets infective endocarditis of their of their new valve, you know, for a different reason, or who has actually demonstrated that they have been able to um, to avoid drug use and they have been able to manage their addiction um, to avoid that. So there certainly are exceptions, but um, many surgeons, uh, myself included, are reluctant to operate on those patients. In this circumstance, it's critical to get an ethics consult. It's critical get, to get a consult from a substance abuse provider. Uh, it's critical to involve the family member so they have a good understanding of what's, of what's happening and what their role can be in either recovery or treating the patient. Um, so it's a, it's a difficult uh, problem, both from an ethical standpoint uh, and from a mechanical standpoint, the risk of a reoperation in this setting is really high. Um, and, um, and so that it can approach futile care, actually, unfortunately. Yeah, so, and, and Dr. Brevik, I, I, I can't even imagine how, how frustrating that must be from a clinical perspective and how just challenging it must be to wrestle with that from an ethical perspective as, as, as a physician, as a, as a, as a provider of care. So, but I'm going to ask the tough question is, is how do we draw the line between adjudicating or at least predicting effective treatment and then futile care? I mean, where does that line? And you mentioned the ethical piece, and maybe this is the time we can talk a little bit about a multidisciplinary approach. And I know that you were one of the leaders within our entire system in crafting a, a protocol for some of these populations that, that does encompass whole person care and does encompass ethics and, and other uh, other specialists. So maybe talk about that a little bit. Well, it, uh, it is a really difficult decision. Um, I think that's why it's important to get other perspectives on it to make sure we're making the right decision for that patient, which means in the best interest of that patient. That's really the that's our that's the cornerstone of the decision making process is what's the best thing for the patient and is this actually going to help them or does it just put them at risk of death uh, of an of a surgical death from an attempted difficult procedure um, but it's it's really valuable to get a number of different perspectives and opinions not just a surgical one but from addiction specialists from uh, from religious leaders from ethical leaders so that we can get to a consensus agreement. Uh, and, and the family and the patient are also involved in this decision-making process uh, because they also have to understand what's, you know, what's happening. Um, so that's the, that's the goal is to come to a consensus opinion um, from a group, a multidisciplinary group with very different perspectives and different expertise and different experiences to, to make sure that we're making the best decision we can in the best interests of the patients. Who, who owns the final decision, in your opinion, <laughs> Dr. Brevik? Uh, unfortunately, I believe the surgeon owns the final decision. Um, 
And I say, unfortunately, for a number of reasons. One is that uh, it's not an easy thing to, you know, to look someone in the eye and look someone's mother in the eye and say, no, uh, this, you're not going to benefit from this. You'll likely die of necroditis. But it, it has to be the surgeon, really, because if, if I'm the surgeon and I'm the one who's actually going to do the mechanical work, I have to agree that it's going to help the patient. Otherwise, I mean, I have an ethical issue if I'm doing something that I don't think is going to help the patient. So ultimately, I also have to be convinced that um, that it is going to benefit the patient. But the ultimate decision, make, decision maker, I would say, is the surgeon in this scenario. But I would rely very heavily on my colleagues in the multidisciplinary team. Well, Dr. Bravik, you're a, you're a, you're a great leader for Providence. You're a, you're a, a wonderful surgeon and you're a phenomenal person. So we're, we're very grateful that you are, you know, you're taking on this, this, this burden and, and this, this responsibility. So thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Walsh, I'm guessing that, that, well, I don't think we need to guess cardiac surgery is probably going to result in a, a, a pretty painful recovery which which would mean that some sort of pain medication is going to be involved in a, in a post-op plan. And so just wondering how it works if you've got a patient that's going through surgery where they're going to need some sort of pain management, and yet they have a substance abuse disorder focused around opioid addiction. How does that, how does that reconcile and, and, and how do we manage that in a way that's not going to lead to a resurfacing of that, of that addictive behavior? I really appreciate the importance of that question, um, but I'm going to take a little bit of a side turn because the question itself demonstrates possibly a misunderstanding of how opiate use disorder is effectively treated. I was thinking a lot how Dr. Brevik talked about this tragedy of all the effort to put a heart valve in a person who's still using. And again, this again reflects how opiate use disorder is treated and should be treated. So there, people tend to think of uh, the treatment of addiction problems as going to AA meetings, going to rehab, and those are really powerful spiritual and emotional changes that we love when patients do. But, but honestly, those treatments have not been shown to be effective for opiate use disorder, and in fact, can uh, paradoxically increase mortality. What's really tragic to me about the situations is there are, are profoundly effective treatments for opiate use disorder that are typically not applied. And our healthcare system has been very skittish and reluctant to use, the, use these treatments. These treatments are pharmacologic treatments, things that in the medical world we know a lot about. The treatments that are effective for opiate disorder are methadone and buprenorphine. They're opiate agonist or partial agonist. They prevent opiate withdrawal. For people who become physically dependent on opiates, the withdrawal is so overwhelming that it becomes the most important priority in people's lives because they are so profoundly physical and physically uncomfortable. That won't be so surprising because many of us are, 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 are dependent on other substances. My wife had to go for her colonoscopy and she said the hardest part of the colonoscopy was not having coffee for 24 hours. Um, that was the most traumatic part of the process for her. And then she had to walk by the coffee machine on the way in and it, and it was like a crazy making feeling. Um, and had she been able to sneak some coffee, she probably would have done so. People in opiate, with, opiate withdrawal are suffering way more than that. And it's not surprising that untreated opiate withdrawal will lead to in-hospital use. Again, it's, it's not recreational. People aren't having fun. It's a desperate, dire, irresistible need for people. So when people have opiate use disorder, A, we want to manage their opiate withdrawal with opioid medications. But even better... When the treatments are applied effectively, methadone and buprenorphine prevent the ability to develop euphoria due to opioid use. 
So if people are managed with medication treatment, not only will they not be using in the hospital, but if they continue their medication treatment, they won't be using in the community. What's challenging is that the hospitals, most of our hospitals, and honestly, including most of our Providence hospitals, this has not become incredibly routine. It is done, and it's gotten better and better over the 20 years that I've been associated with the organization. We now have order sets encouraging people to start methadone and buprenorphine in the hospital. I'm sure Dr. Brevik has seen that happen for some many of his patients in Improv Everett. But, but many of our hospitals still don't have experience doing this. And addiction medicine consultation, which has been shown to reduce mortality, for people in, admitted to the hospital with infective endocarditis is not available in the vast majority of our hospitals. Typically, it's been academic centers what, like ours where we're training people as addiction medicine specialties, but the majority of our hospitals don't have that available. We're trying to create systems of, of remote telemedicine to broaden the service, but it, honestly, it's been an uphill climb. So we have effective treatments. They're roundly not applied. Now, in addition to the technical issues, sort of the know-how and the mechanics, the main reason they're not applied, though, is because of stigma and, and judgment that's made around substance use disorders. People with substance use disorders are afraid to come to the hospital. They don't want to come. Partly that's because they're worried their withdrawal will not be treated. But the main reason, if you ask people, is they're afraid they'll be treated disrespectfully, like they're doing something wrong, like they committed a crime. And some of the language that we've used today, recidivism, um, adjudication, um, even the word addict can hit people with the sense that you think I'm a bad person, a person who deserves to be punished or incarcerated. And now, the, America as a nation, the United States, made a decision in 1914 to treat opiate disorder as a criminal justice problem rather than a medical problem. Prior to 1914, it was treated as a medical problem. But for the last hundred years, it's been treated largely as a problem of the criminal justice system, which has led to so many of the problems we see today. And a lot of the troubles that Dr. Brevik talked about, the financial troubles for people, all are connected to that. Fortunately, in 1970, methadone treatment became available, although with a lot of barriers and limitations. And in the year 2000, buprenorphine treatment became available. And it's becoming increasingly normal for opiate disorder to be, be seen as a medical problem treated pharmacologically with profound success. I can talk about two patients we saw. They were young women, came in with severe endocarditis. Like Dr. Brevik talked about, they needed emergency surgery. We offered them pharmacologic treatment. They were very reluctant to take it. They felt that they would be doing something bad. They'd only be like real sober people if they did abstinence-based treatment. It took a lot of effort to convince them and their, and their family that this was a positive thing to do that they should feel good about. Just like a patient with diabetes needs insulin. It's not a source of shame. It's effective therapy. I'm happy to say those two women, I've known them for 10 years. They're stable in their medicines. They haven't touched opioids since. Um, they've had other struggles, of course, as people do, but it's very effective when people embrace the medicine. But the, the way that we think about the problem and the way we talk to patients about the problem often make them feel like they shouldn't accept the medication. And if we treated diabetic patients as though they were committing a crime whenever they uh, ate frosted flakes, um, which you know you shouldn't do, but, but how we engage with people about it will affect their openness to, to accept effective medication. So here's the happy news for you, Matt. Um, it is true that opiates are used for surgery. And I actually read something last night that for people who've been opiate naive, who've never touched an opiate in their life, 5% of people who get heart surgery are still taking opioids six months later, probably prescribed by a doctor, probably because they had trouble stopping. And that doesn't surprise us because one to two to 5% of people have opiate disorders often started through a medical treatment that they might have well needed. You know, But for people on buprenorphine or methadone, 
prescribing opiates to manage their pain is not a problem whatsoever. You need very high doses to override the effect of the medicine. But because there's no euphoric effect, as the pain is relieved, those medicines fall away very, very easily. So we treat people with surgical treatments every day at Swedish. I'm sure this happens at Providence too. If they're on pharmacotherapy for their opiate use disorder, it's not a problem and it does not compromise their recovery. If people are trying to do abstinence-based uh, treatment, you know, like I'm not taking any medicine, I'm just going to NA meetings, there are obviously a significance of relapse, but honestly, there's always a big risk of relapse. An abstinence-based treatment is associated with a very high mortality due to overdose, not to mention infections and things like this. So it's incumbent upon the whole healthcare system to really normalize, encourage, and to help people feel good about being on medication treatment for their abuse disorder. Well, thank you for all of that. And it, it sounds like there are still, we still have a, a ways to go in, in, in the adoption of, of some effective treatments. Maybe talk a little bit about, because I, you know, I think Providence and Swedish, in addition to being a, a healthcare organization, I think we very much see ourselves as operating within a health ecosystem and offering services that may not just be the clinical delivery of care, but the idea of, of supportive services and social services and other things. Maybe talk a little bit about what we could recommend to patients within our system, whether housing or other community benefits that would help address some of those barriers to care. Well, you know, housing is a challenge, of course, because it's so expensive. And the more chaotic people's lives are, everything's going to be harder. I was treating uh, some adolescents for their opiate disorder, and it was a struggle. But then I remembered when I was doing primary care, treating adolescents for everything is kind of a struggle, because being an adolescent is a struggle, right? So you have to accept that things are going to be complicated for people. When folks are homeless, you know, complying with their medicine is hard. That's true for their opiate disorder medicine. It's true for their antibiotic medicine. It's true for their mental health medicine. It's true for their diabetic medicines. I think we have to have realistic expectations what people can accomplish when, when they don't have the resources maybe that we have in our lives. Creating systems obviously can, can resolve this. I can imagine giant economic changes that might resolve the housing crisis, but I'm not smart enough to know how to do that. Um, we have housing agencies that have made housing available for people. And the difference when people are housed versus unhoused, wow. I mean, just your ability to help them is, is huge, but it's hard to bring housing on because it costs money. It's not a simple thing to do, right? We have had some in-between things. So in Seattle, we have what they call a medical respite shelter, the Edward Thomas House set up with a combination of uh, our hospital and some other hospitals all collaborated on putting that program together. It's a place where people can complete their antibiotic therapy. And it's a little bit like uh, a medical facility, but it's also a little bit like a shelter. For our patients who are homeless, this is a win, even though the food might be better at the hospital. Um, when they're at the Edward Thomas house, they get connected to people with real expertise around housing. That's amazing. I can, I can imagine a well-resourced organization, if I can think of it that way, like Providence, could do more to help housing and collaborate with our housing partners. Um, I remember once we went to visit uh, the, the, a sobering center where people who got over-intoxicated um, we're getting help. And the hospital was collaborating with them. And the people were sleeping on mats on the floor. And just the ability to donate some blankets, which for the hospital, for like a really small and inexpensive thing to do, was like an incredible victory for the sobering center because because their finances are just so thin and so slim. So there's probably more that we could do to partner with their agencies. I often find our hospital discharge planners are not very sophisticated about housing because they're kind of set up for people who have three or four day hospital stays. 
And and it's not much you can do for housing. But when we have people who are six weeks in the hospital, there's probably more that we could do to get people in the pipeline, honestly. So I do feel like there's some missed opportunities. But it's all about local partnerships. And the and the people to partner with are going to vary. Every community is going to be specific and different. Thank you for that. I remember a cardiologist in Eastern Washington once saying to me, housing is the most important prescription. And uh, would that we had more resources in that. I don't think we ever, we'll ever never have enough, but but the the importance of, of stable housing just, it, it just can't be, it can't be overstated. Uh, Dr. Brevik, so from your perspective, if, if we're if we're looking at that that post-operative care, that, that after treatment care, what, what can doctors and other medical professionals do, uh, cardiac surgeons or, or other, to really encourage those patients to properly care for themselves after treatment, help get them into a recovery program? Well, I think um, Dr. Walsh's comments really emphasize the importance of a multidisciplinary approach and having an addiction medicine specialist involved in the care of these patients. Uh, it's really not something that me or my team have a high level of expertise in, but it's critical to bring that expertise into the care. Of the patient uh, to make sure that they have uh, some place to go after their hospitalization, which is stable, where they can take their medications, where they are perhaps not in the same social situation that you know led them into their addiction issues or, or promoted their addiction issues or enabled them in the past. Um, so that really gets back to the concept you mentioned that of holistic care, which is we have to solve the problem that 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 caused and promotes and encourages the addiction. And that involves a number of different specialists and a number of different disciplines, uh, including uh, discharge planning and, and, uh, and housing and, and social issues and financial issues that the patients simply cannot recover without those. Well, we have to realize, right, that we are, we're, we're, we're practicing medicine within an ecosystem. And that ecosystem includes progression of disease, but it also includes climate change, homelessness, uh, loss of jobs, and other factors that, that, that dramatically influence a person's life and the way that person comes to us seeking care. And I think that, that just focusing on one piece of that, just focusing on the, the, the clinical delivery, misses the opportunity to bring in other complementary perspectives, services that would ultimately serve the patient better in the long term, whether that would be from an you know, anatomical perspective or, or a social perspective. Uh, so I feel like this time went by really fast. We probably could spend another couple hours on this topic. Uh, we are wrapping up. So just, just before we, we end, is there anything that, that we didn't cover today that you really want to make sure that our listeners know or resources that she, we, we should we should let them know, they should hear about. Uh, Dr. Brevik, let's start with you. I think uh, increasing awareness of the potential for uh, life-threatening complications of uh, drug use disorders, substance abuse disorders uh, is critical. I think really the underlying issue of how we deal with substance abuse disorders in the United States is, um, is what's ultimately gonna have the most impact on mitigating this problem. Thank you, and Dr. Walsh? Yeah, I, I guess I want to I want to emphasize how how powerfully effective treatment for opioid disorder is, and there are pharmacologic and other treatments for all the other substances which can have moderate to impressive efficacy. 
Um, for people who are healthcare providers, when a patient with a substance use disorder comes to see you, that is an act of bravery and courage, and they're terrified of how you think of them. And if they're brave enough to admit to you that they've got this problem, uh, I encourage you to, to be, uh, be encouraging and rewarding and engage the healthcare system to treat them. For, for people with opioid disorder specifically, everybody in the hospital should have that managed with opioid medications, uh, typically methadone and buprenorphine. Uh, there's a, a variety of options that can be done. And we should make that part of what we normally do. People should not be in withdrawal as a condition for being in the hospital. For folks who have a substance disorder themselves or have a loved one with that, again, treatments are there for you. And, and if you're willing to talk to your medical provider or really anybody, once you start talking about it with people, good things happen for folks. And overcoming that shame and embarrassment is probably the most important step to getting the help people need. So we're hopeful, hopefully the folks will, will hear this and understand that the medical system and other people in your life are, are, are waiting for you to reach out for help because there's help that's available. That was really well said, and, and I think that that's, that's probably the perfect place to, to wrap up this episode. Dr. Brevik, I know you have a cardiac surgery to get to. Uh, Dr. Walsh, you, I'm sure you have patients to see. So folks, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on this important topic on Heart Matters. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on heart health and wellness with more experts from Providence in future episodes. Make sure you listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, go to Providence.org. And for more information on Boston Scientific, visit BostonScientific.com. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you. Thank you.